Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. And welcome, everyone. We are delighted to be here today. We had some trouble getting back from Europe, so we had to cancel yesterday. And Dr. David Martin kindly agreed, and Dr. Kelly as well, Dr. Kelly Victory, agreed to push until today. So we are very privileged to have both of them with us. This should be a very interesting conversation. Stand by. Uh, after the lab break, I'm going to play for you the tape that caught my attention while we're speaking to Dr. Martin today. Uh, Dr. Martin received a Master's in Science from Ball State, a doctorate from the University of Virginia. He has uh, said some very provocative things about the virus, including at the European uh, Parliament. He alleged that COVID-19 was uh, premeditated uh, and that the virus itself was a biological weapon of genocide. He's going to talk about his history following, fighting, working with this coronavirus or something similar uh, for many years. Reminder, we've got Viva Fry in here on Friday, Li Meng Yen on Tuesday, and Ivor coming on Wednesday. We'll be right back with Dr. David Martin after this. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin. Ridiculous. I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. There are three steps to great-looking, glowing complexion in the summer. Of course, apply sunscreen, stay hydrated, and use the amazing skincare products from our friends at Genucel. Most retinol creams are not recommended for sunlight, but Genucel's Ultra Retinol uses a powerful plant extract retinol. It's an alternative called Bacuchiol, which helps the skin stay hydrated, smooths out fine lines without harsh side effects, and it is safe to use outside under your sunscreen. Genucel works so well, you can see the results in this unplanned live moment on our show when the Redness Repair Cream repaired my skin in just minutes right before your eyes. And Susan and I love Genucel so much, we created our affordable bundles at up to 72% off of our favorite products at genucel.com slash drew and just for the summer every subscription includes a customized summer spa gift box absolutely free i know i'm a snob about the products i use on my face everybody knows it every time i go to the dermatologist's office they're just rows and rows of different creams and then when i get to the counter they're overpriced all kinds of products that you can all find at genucel.com see what's in our bundles get ready to show off your summertime skin go to genucel.com slash drew that's g-e-n-u-c-e-l.com slash d-r-e-w genucel.com slash drew and remember to use the code drew at checkout for extra savings i want to share with you a teeth whitening system that goes beyond merely enhancing your smile primal life organics real white teeth whitening system offers convenience and rapid results without harsh chemicals light blue light for whitening red light for gum and oral hygiene 
and you can just do both if you wish. Works naturally, promoting gum healing, tooth remineralization, gives you a brighter and a healthier smile. Again, no peroxide involved. Consistent usage yields remarkable results. Take this opportunity to transform your smile and at the same time, optimize your oral health. Aim for five times a week for the best outcomes. Discover more about this remarkable teeth whitening system and other products at drdrew.com primal today. That again is drdrew.com p-r-i-m-a-l. Be sure to use that link for 60% off drdrew.com p-r-i-m-a-l. Do it today for 60% off. Over a decade ago, I sat in this very chair right here in the European Union Parliament. And at that time, I warned the world of what was coming. We were having a conversation on whether Europe should adopt the United States policy of allowing for the patents on biologically derived materials. And at the time, I urged this body and I urged people around the world that the weaponization of nature against humanity had dire consequences. Tragically, I sit here today um, with that unfortunate line that I don't like to say, which I told you so. And here we are. Dr. David Martin joins us. Uh, Dr. Martin, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Dr. Drew, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I, I want to start with, for, I, I want to hear your history with the virus, how you were able to get to the point where you could say, I told you so. And then what is it about you and your training that, because I, I, I want to anticipate criticism here. And I'm wondering if you could also address what your training and background is such that you're in a position to have evaluated these sorts of things. Yeah, well, there's probably two threads that are worth pulling, Drew. The first is that in the early 1990s, I ran the clinical trials program for the University of Virginia Medical School, where we established in the Commonwealth of Virginia, the first ever medical device contract research organization for clinical trials to submit to the FDA. And so my medical school appointments, which were in orthopedic surgery and radiology at the time, were the academic reason why I was there, but the business reason I was there was to run clinical trials. So my expertise professionally was doing clinical trials for the FDA. So I, I kind of know what I'm doing there. Um, and the companies that we worked with included Siemens and GE and Picker and, and Diagnostic Systems Labs and all kinds of companies, um, Barringer, Mannheim, others, where our, our work was to evaluate medical technologies and medical claims. So I, I have a background in the sciences. And in fact, my, my PhD was the first kinematic assessments of, of how to look at soft tissue and MRIs. So it's a very geeky subject, but that's, that's what I was doing uh, for my PhD as well. The other arm of this is that in the 1990s, I had a company called Mosaic Technologies, and we did treaty-restricted technology transfer. And specifically what that means is that we went into countries around the world who were prohibited from exporting offensive military technology. And our job on behalf of the United States government was to review technologies that had military origins but find ways for those to be used in civilian applications. And many of those, by the way, were in healthcare applications, telemedicine, uh, various imaging technologies, et cetera. 
And it was in the late 1990s that I became very involved in looking at the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology and Fort Detrick and other programs where we saw an enormous amount of things that appeared to blur the of biological and potentially chemical weapons treaties and laws here in the United States under 18 U.S. Code. And it was beginning in that period of time, the late 1990s, and specifically in 1999, that we encountered a very concerning piece of information. And that was the work that was done at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, where in the decade preceding from 1990 until 1999, the Pfizer patent on the coronavirus vaccine, which was established largely for veterinary applications uh, using a spike protein uh, vaccine uh, platform for, for veterinary sciences. In 1999, a project was done at UNC Chapel Hill where trans species modifications of a chimera of coronavirus was being done. And it was specifically being done to target the heart tissue in rabbits. And it specifically created cardiomyopathy in rabbits. And it was that that attracted Dr. Anthony Fauci and NIAID's research dollars, which gave rise to a very alarming patent that was filed in 2002 at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, which actually patented an infectious replication defective clone derived from the coronavirus model. And this is quite alarming because the words infectious replication defective not only suggested, but the patent went on to quite literally describe the use of coronavirus not as a descriptor of a pathogen, but a, a biologically derived substance that could be used both as a vaccine vector, but could also be used as a biological weapons agent. And in 2002, that patent was filed. The publications around that were back in 2001 and in 2002. And that gave rise to a series of modifications of coronavirus, which precede SARS 1.0. And when let, SARS 1.0 came can, out, I want to stop you right at SARS 1.0. I want to make sure I'm clear on a couple of these things. When you're yeah. saying you use this infectious replication defective virus as a vaccine vector, I, I'm not quite sure. How, what you're saying there. Yep. And I get that so, it could be used as a so, weapon. So how is it used as a yeah. vaccine vector? So the idea was to use the surface proteins associated with the coronavirus uh, entity itself as a means of getting other things into the cell. It turns out that one of the things that makes the membrane proteins of the cell respond to the virome of coronavirus, which is what the coronavirus lives in, is that the protein shell that contains what we're calling this pathogen, that shell interacts with the cell membrane and increases the cell's willingness to take whatever the cDNA or RNA information that is inside of that protein packet. It's what essentially delivers the information into the cell. And so what made this, this is the, very this, interesting- this is, the ACE, this is the ACE receptor function, right? This is this so the, the same binding the site that, that SARS-2 is using? 
That's exactly right. Yeah. The spike proteins and the ACE2 okay. receptor and a few other receptors, there are actually four or five mm -hmm. meaning what we call open reading frame sections of that uh, model that become very amenable to being taken into a cell. And the whole okay. notion was that this thing would become a ideal candidate to deliver HIV genes. That was the stated and express interest um, by Anthony Fauci back in 1999 and 2000. So the idea of using this viral model as a technology mm -hmm. is alarming to say the least when we don't fully understand that the duration of this thing already had gotten from gastrointestinal disease, which is where the vast majority of animals experience coronavirus associated problems, all of a sudden we're now targeting human hearts and human lung tissue to the point where we had the same researchers talk about the opportunity this had to infect human lung tissue. These kinds of statements where you're actually talking about the possibility of amplifying an animal pathogen and making it available for human infection is at best alarming and at worst a violation of the law. And what creates the kind of giant red letter day for us was, was in fact that 2002 patent filing that precedes the outbreak allegedly of SARS because we did not have SARS until we had the infectious replication defective clone of coronavirus. SARS-1. And the history is what it is. SARS-1, so, 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 so it leaves so, us in this Sar bizarre situation where the winter two point of 2002 and the spring of 2003, which is when yeah. we have the fledged outbreak of SARS, is preceded not by one or two patents, but Drew, it was preceded by over 15 patents on variations of the coronavirus package that would be used for various technical applications. Now, I have been very frequently, and, and I'll address this head on. I mean, having been a biological weapons inspector for the United States officially, in 2002, again in 2003, and then representing the United States interests at the first biological weapons and biological research program that was hosted in Tehran in 2004. Um, you know, a lot of people sit there and go, okay, well, hold on a minute, biological weapons, we didn't, we didn't know this was about biological weapons. Well, the problem is, ever since the 1950s, the late 1950s, even though the United States passed laws against biological weapons, we decided that it would be in our national interest to research biological weapons, allegedly so we could come up with countermeasures. But Dr. Drew, this is where we have a moral and ethical problem because in 2005, what happened was Ralph Barrick, the same guy who came up with the infectious replication defective clone, Ralph Barrick made a presentation funded by the MITRE Corporation um, and DARPA. And in that presentation, he titled his presentation, Biohacking, Coronavirus Biological Enabling Warfare Technology. And I don't know how you can spin a title of a presentation 
biowarfare enabling technology and not derive from that the conclusion that that's a biowarfare program. This was not about mm. medical countermeasures. This was not about coming up with treatments. This was not coming up with this idea of, hey, is there a way that bad actors would do this? This was specifically stating that we were doing it and not by implication. It quite literally was the presentation that was made. And therein lies the problem. You, you can't hide behind the admission that not only was this a biological weapons program as stated as such, this is not me implying anything. It's actually right off of Ralph Barrick's professional CV and right off of the MITRE official documents of the meeting at DARPA. This was a biological weapons program and our allies knew about it. When I was in Slovenia in 2000, when I was in Tehran in 2004, these were topics that were in conversation at that time, along with, and viewers need to remember that this all came out in large part because we'll remember in September of 2001, the United States was attacked allegedly by anthrax only to find out that that anthrax was released by the United States military. And the year preceding that particular alleged attack, the United States Defense Department received authorization from the FDA to get ciprofloxacin, drug for inhalation anthrax approved, with not a single clinical study establishing its safety or efficacy, only a note that says, if anyone has any questions, they should ask Colonel Friedland, who is actually the US military's person on inhalation anthrax. And that was a year before the anthrax attacks. So all of this is happening against the backdrop of an explicit and admitted program of biological weapons using natural and modified pathogens. So I want I want to bring Kelly in here in just a second, but I'm going to wrap up with one quick question, which has got three parts to it. One is you you keep referencing we and us were going after these things. Who who exactly was us in 2002 for you? Number one. Number two. Um, one of the things that got my attention when you were speaking to the EU Parliament was you said I've been going after this or I've been fighting this since for over twenty yes. years. I, so a who is us? What have you been doing to fight? And then how have yes. people been responding since that video went out? What kind of what kind of reception or attacks have you been receiving? So three three questions, and then we'll bring Kelly in here. So, so sorry, sorry, it's is... all lumped into one. No, it's okay. That's, that's fine. We and us is my company, MCAM, which is a subsidiary of Mosaic Technologies. Uh, we're the ones that do the international review of intellectual property. And we're the ones that have underwritten intellectual property for the world's financial institutions for the last now 25 years. So that is the we. MCAM had a specific mission that included a program called Innovation Literacy. And that innovation program Specifically, had an allocation of resources that we applied to recording, archiving, and publishing every, every vital and chemical weapons treaties worldwide. And so the we has been doing this since our first official publication that was submitted to the United States Congress, to the European Union, and to law enforcement and intelligence agencies in 2002. And every year since, we have maintained the only active archive worldwide 
of every nation state actor and every commercial or corporate or private actor who has violated the Geneva and subsequent conventions on biological and chemical weapons. So what we have done, and your point about 2012, is beginning in October of 2002 at the presidency of the European Union that was held by Denmark during that period of time, I was asked to go to Aalborg, Denmark, and make a presentation on the status of the European Union's, what was called the Commission's, European Commission's Patent Initiative. And in that program, I discussed the fact that there was a huge amount of patent activity in Europe, including the amendment of the European patent laws, which were allowing for patents on living systems or living derived systems. And we were suggesting then in 2002 that it was a bad idea. And then in 2012, in response to the breast cancer gene patent lawsuits here in the United States, which we helped uh, take all the way to the Supreme Court, ultimately overturning the myriad genetics patents on breast cancer gene uh, diagnostics, what we were doing in 2012 was actually stating to the European Union that there had been a number of violations of biological and chemical weapons laws and of the patent statutes affecting innovations around those particular technologies. And that was the reference I made in my presentation to the European Union Parliament. And in terms of how people have been responding to this, this is the last piece of my little diet, my little tri triplicate there. <laughs> Well, uh, according to uh, a lot of social media statistics, that video is now the most watched video in the history of the Internet with over three billion views. So um, hmm. I, I have been uh, amazed at how viral, to your point, it, it, it definitely got viral. Um, it, it made it around the world. I think in part, we have to be careful with our enthusiasm about it because in part, there was, and I, I must point to the Carter, um, the Carter Center, uh, who I don't have a lot of use for, but I think they made a, a point that's worth acknowledging, which is as an American making that presentation in Europe, there's a lot of the world who is misattributing what I'm saying as a U.S. bashing exercise. And of that sharing, according to the Carter Center, was based on anti-American sentiment. And I want to be very clear mm. on the fact that this is not a mm. pro or anti-America message. This is a, a very clear message that the world needs to pay attention to the fact that right now in the United States, we have active biological weapons programs on a number of pathogens. And as a society, this is a conversation we should be having. I'm not saying that we're the bad guys or the good guys. I'm simply saying that it's an important conversation. And what I tell you is that there is a certain degree of global embrace of an American saying America might have something it needs to look at. So, uh, you know, I think their point is fair. Um, I don't agree with them, but I actually think that the point is worth noting. Yeah, not only that, but uh, we do, you know, before we're going to start pointing fingers elsewhere, which we do need to, and we haven't yet begun to talk about China, but we do need to yeah. clean up our own shop before we uh, insist other people do so 
uh, in their own countries. But uh, Dr. David E. Martin is here. I uh, follow him at Dr. Martin World, at Dr. Martin World, Dr. Martin World, uh, founder and chairman of MCAM Inc. We're going to bring Dr. Kelly Victory in here with Dr. Martin right after this uh, brief message. We'll be right back in about a couple minutes. A lot of you have been asking for more information about how to counter the adverse effects of the spike protein from COVID infections and the COVID vaccine. The spike protein is not your friend, let's just say that. So I'm glad we have the wellness company Spike Support Formula as a sponsor, especially since renowned internist and cardiologist Dr. Peter McCullough, who's also chief scientific officer of the wellness company, is one of its champions. There's some very intriguing research around natokinase, which might be a way to take on the spike protein. Listen to this. So start, if you would, with talking about natokinase, how you got to that and where you see its application. So with the viral infection or the vaccines, the spike protein stays within the body and it's found in the heart, the brain, the vital organs, and it's causing problems. The Japanese have been using this for heart and vascular disease now for 20 years. It's safe. It is a form of a mild blood thinner that it dissolves the spike protein nearly completely. Spike support formula is the only product on the market containing natokinase, dandelion root, and a host of other antioxidants all showing promise in helping you protect yourself and your family. To order this unique, specially formulated supplement, go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com slash TWC. Use code Drew at checkout for 10% off today. I suspect you've seen Susan and I gushing over Paleo Valley products. We love the taste and how well they fit into a paleo-based nutrition regimen. They're delicious and we use them for travel all the time. But there is more. We are huge fans as well of Paleo Valley's grass-fed bone broth protein. It comes in three flavors, unflavored, vanilla and chocolate. It's a powder you can add to really anything. We add it to coffee literally every day. Smoothies, baked dishes, or just hot water dissolves really easily. The bone broth protein is made with 100% grass-fed and finished bones that are free from pesticides or antibiotics and are slow simmered to extract as much collagen as possible. As we age, collagen breaks down. That's what wrinkles are. And research shows that there are significant benefits to adding a collagen source in your diet. I think it's too much to say it's changed our lives. And Susan is now reporting that after drinking the bone broth for a few weeks, her hair is stronger and longer and nails are stronger too. Try it for yourself. You can order at drdrew.com slash paleovalley and use Dr. Drew at checkout to save an additional 15%. Some platforms have banned the discussion of controversial topics. If this episode ends here, the rest of the show is available at drdrew.tv. There's nothing in medicine that doesn't boil down to a risk-benefit calculation. It is the mandate of public health to consider the impact of any particular mitigation scheme on the entire population. This is uncharted territory, Drew. Boy, those uh, public health mitigation uh, procedures are still <laughs> having... Uh, <laughs> I was talking to uh, my someone recently who was dealing with uh, 13 year olds and they'd been so severely traumatized through, through all this. But Dr. Victory, welcome back to the show. Uh, people were a buzz over on Restream. I know they're very anxious to see you looking and doing so well. Uh, you can give them an update if you wish, but it's a pleasure to have you here. I give you Dr. David Martin. Thank you and thank everybody for their well wishes. It's meant the world to me and I have no question it's why I'm doing as well as I am. So updates to follow, but keep the prayers coming. Uh, Dr. Martin, thank you for being here. I've so, been so looking forward to this conversation and I appreciate your willingness to flex your schedule 
to accommodate our schedule change. It would have been a crime. I know our viewers have really been looking forward to this as well. Um, before I get into the weeds, and, and Drew can always, um, you know, trust me to to get into the weeds on things, and I certainly will go to China. <laughs> uh, I am the heat-seeking missile here. Uh, but before I start, I want to amplify something that Drew started with, which was your background, your pedigree. Yeah. Um, a lot of times we get criticism from people who say, oh, you know, this person isn't a vaccinologist or they're not an infectious disease expert or, you know, they're not an epidemiologist. And I would submit that you have far better uh, experience, far deeper experience in the intricacies and nuances of the regulatory process, uh, what's expected of the FDA, what the normal procedures are, and furthermore, how procedures may have been breached uh, in the in the process of this pandemic debacle. So we're going to get into that. I want to start right out of the box with um, gain of function. Um, yes, you know. People, you're talking about, you know, weaponization of things. And, you know, I'm going to call it the, the phrase that most people are more familiar with uh, and have become familiar with during the pandemic, which is gain of function. And despite the right. fact that, as far as I'm concerned, Anthony Fauci perjured himself on multiple occasions by denying that that was going on. When you take a pathogen, whether it's a virus or a bacterium or anything else capable of creating illness or disease, and you enhance its pathogenicity. You enhance right. its le lethality. That is the definition of gain of function. And although there are darn few things that I agreed with President Obama about, I was a strong supporter of the moratorium that was placed under his tutelage uh, in 2014 on gain of function research because it was deemed to be so dangerous. So start with that. In your, Do you have any question that this constituted gain of function and and you know just talk a little bit about what happened yeah. here with regard to this so kelly i i am a very outspoken critic of rand paul um because i'm a kind of a prosecutor i actually studied law at the university of virginia too a lot of people don't know that but i'm a i'm a huge fan of delivering the evidence when you have it and in october of 2014 the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill received a letter from Anthony Fauci's NIAID saying that Ralph Barrick's research, and by the way, if you want to look at it, I have it up on my Twitter feed. It says this research is gain of function, and it says gain of function. It doesn't say anything else. It says it's gain of function. And not only does it say it's gain of function, but Kelly, it gets worse. They actually modified the gain of function grant and authorized it to be used in vivo. Now that's a Latin term. Not everybody's familiar with that. But a lot of gain of function research is done with computer simulation or in laboratory models or in Petri dishes or in what have you. But this particular gain of function was not only not subject to the moratorium, the last sentence and the last paragraph on the first page of that letter says, that since the grant is already funded, you can keep doing the moratorium research. It says it right on the page that, it, once again, I put up on my Twitter feed so people who sit there going, well, are you reading into something? No, I'm not reading into something. It actually says it's a gain of function study. You are authorized to keep going during the moratorium because we already funded you. Now, I don't know what kind of moratorium that is, but what I also know 
is the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill knew that what they were doing was in violation of the moratorium because in a very interesting article, and I just had it here because I figured I might anticipate your story, right? This particular article, SARS-like WIV-1 COV poised for human emergence, which was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences um, from research that was subjected to review in September of 2015. So for those of you paying attention, during the moratorium, at the end of this paper, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill violated its own institutional protocol by impaneling two institutional review boards. One, that reviewed ethics of the study, and two, which reviewed the ethics of violating the law with respect to the moratorium. And by the way, that's not me hypothecating this. The paper actually says that they reviewed the illegal presumption of doing the research that was in fact subject to the moratorium, and they published that they decided that it was okay to violate the moratorium. So this isn't a close call. This is Anthony Fauci lying, and Rand Paul has had that piece of paper every time Fauci has been opposite him in the Senate, and not once has Rand Paul held the piece of paper from NIAD and said, Anthony Fauci... Hey. You said it was gain of function on coronavirus with, are you ready for this? The WIV1 coronavirus. Kelly, by now you should be asking, well, what on earth is WIV1? Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's pull the, pull the cover back on that. That's Wuhan Institute of Virology Virus 1, which was reassembled during the gain of function moratorium at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill in violation of 18 U.S. Code on Biological Weapons. So I don't know how many ways. This is not a close call. This is not a debate on, well, what's the definition of a thing? This is them using their own language and saying, in October 2014, we know there's a moratorium. We know we're violating the moratorium. We know we're violating it because there's money in violating it. We know we're doing it in North Carolina, and we know we're doing it on the Wuhan Institute of Virology Virus 1. How much more do you need to right. prove that this was not some sort of nonsensical lab leak or accident or anything else? There is zero chance that a 2016 publication that says that the Wuhan virus is poised for human emergence leaves us with any doubt that humans built this, that humans deployed it, right. and that the United States and China acted in collaboration to unleash hell on earth. Yeah, you're hundred percent, and we're gonna continue with you leading us down this path. I got kicked off every social media platform for saying that this was lab created back in early, in March yep. of 2020, uh, because it was irrefutable then, the data are unassailable, we have the, we have the evidence. So now, Okay, so now you've connected that Anthony Fauci specifically tells Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, my alma mater, by the way, um, that uh, they can continue with gain of function research, yep. which he calls it that yep. because they were fundamentally grandfathered in, they'd already gotten the grant. They they break the law and they cover up, make it, you know, they acknowledge that they are, but that they've made a decision to do it. Now, <laughs> enter 
Peter Dayzak and EcoHealth Alliance. Lead us how yeah. it goes from Chapel Hill over to you know ground zero in Wuhan. Yeah, so that that's that's where this thing gets a little bit of of problematic with respect to what has been reported versus the evidence. The evidence is that somewhere around 2012 or 2013, there were samples allegedly taken from three to five, and depends on whose data you look at, but three to five miners in the Guangdong province of China who had a very, very nasty response allegedly to exposure to bat guano, which is these people were in a cave shoveling bat shit, literally, um, and, and got some sort of respiratory uh, problem that was quite, quite severe. Glassy lungs, all the kinds of things we associate with quite uh, bizarre and idiopathic uh, forms of pneumonia. And what was allegedly sampled was prepared by the laboratory of Zheng Li Shi, who was a virologist who collaborated with Ralph Barrick for many years and had numerous collaborations on both black projects through DARPA as well as NIH-funded projects through NIAID, and they have been collaborating for quite some time. And what happened was that according to Ralph Barrick's own written admission, which we got not, I mean, somewhat surprisingly, he actually wrote to the Financial Times editor who was trying to do a story on this, and I received a copy of that communication. But Ralph Barrick says that what he did was he actually uploaded the sequence from Wuhan and reproduced and amplified that sequence at the UNC Chapel Hill lab. So the actual work that was done in 2014, 15, and 16, funded by the UNC Chapel Hill grants that were NIAID and DARPA grants, both of which were in the eight to $10 million per year range, led to a project that DARPA was proposing where they wanted to look at the pr propensity of coronavirus to be ready to jump species. And this is where EcoHealth Alliance becomes a very muddied water because while it is true that they in fact got new grant funding associated with the coronavirus research that has received a lot of attention, the 3.6 to $3.7 million of the grant that everybody in the media talks about, what has been ignored is over $41 million of State Department, DARPA, and NIAID funding, which actually was collaborations with Dashik, Barrick, and Zheng Li Shi, where they were exchanging model pathogens and model chimeras back and forth between the United States and China and co-publishing and co-acknowledging each other's work in both China and in the United States. What we know without any question is that the spike protein sequence it was given to Moderna in a material transfer agreement predating the outbreak of the pandemic, as we were told in 2019, was a material transfer agreement from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. It was not a sample from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that is in their own published documented evidence. So that's okay. So this is a perfect right. segue because I want to. Let me just tee this up, Drew. Kelly, and then, I'm sorry, Kelly. I, I, I want to make sure I'm I'm not not sure I'm getting what the implication of that is before you go on to the next part. Is it was what is the implication yeah, of, of those observations? Could you so, could you hear so that at all, in, guys? Yeah. yeah. So in September 
of 20, September 18th, 2019, the World Health Organization got together and published in a thing called the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, published a statement mm -hmm. that said that we were going to actually have a respiratory pathogen release. And that respiratory path pathogen release, this is their words straight out of their document, would by September 2020 lead the world to accept a universal vaccine. In, on, on the 19th of September, the White House signed what became the precursor to Operation Warp Speed, which was a day later when Donald Trump signed the executive order that put in place a rapid response vaccine production mandate as part of an executive order that was for both pan-influenza and experimental new pathogen vaccine production. That took place on the 19th of September, 2019. We have event 201 in October of 2019. And then in November, a month before patient one, allegedly in China, there is a material transfer agreement between the University of North Carolina Chapel Hills, Ralph Barrick and Moderna, transferring a sequence of a spike protein associated with the Wuhan virus coronavirus for the production in Ralph Barrick's written statement to the Financial Times, where he says that the information he transferred was for the Moderna injection, predating patient one. So yeah, so the so the, and this Kelly? is very clear. And I think it's critically, but that's where I was going with this. That the timeline of events makes it irrefutable that this was not. You know, we're led to believe. Remember, everybody, January twenty twenty. We're led to believe there's this quote novel, never been seen before pathogen out there. This novel virus, yeah. and that's why it's so scary, and nobody knows what to do about it. They not only knew what to do about it, they'd already had a documented material transfer to wait for it a big pharma company to create a vaccine for this thing and at the exact same time if i correct me if i'm wrong dr martin at the exact same time pfizer miraculously comes up with the precise formulation for a vaccine right. using the exact same thing so talk what's the yeah, likelihood and, and, of and, that and, happening and, and kelly yeah and kelly and dr drew let's 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 you know, sometimes parsimony is the most important thing. If if the simplest answer is the answer, then it's the answer. And in this case, not only is what I'm saying all documented, but what makes it slightly worse is that Anthony Fauci in his own email about the whole lab leak versus natural hypothesis specifically stated that the reason why he did not want Ralph Barrick anywhere in the room during those discussions is, quote, because he was too close to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. If you were doing an investigation into a crime, wouldn't you want the person who actually had the best evidence to be your lead investigator? How ridiculous is it to say that Ralph Barrick was disqualified from being in the lab leak conversation, but on February 2nd, he was qualified to be the guy that makes up the story that this is a, quote, novel pathogen, because for the ICTV, the World Health Organization's International Committee on Taxonomy of Viruses, he was the person who was the person stipulated to say that this thing was not made in his lab. Isn't it convenient? Isn't it convenient that the guy who actually decided that this was novel is also the guy who had the patents filed on the thing 
and didn't want the public to know he had already patented it. It's mind boggling. And the evidence train, unfortunately, in this case, is so thick that what has happened is we have been overwhelmed by all of the alleged conspiratorial and contingency stories rather than looking at the evidence. The evidence speaks for itself. And the right. evidence so said that Anthony Fauci knew it wasn't novel. Ralph Barrick knew that he had patented the methodology. And the UNC Chapel Hill Labs knew that they had signed the material transfer agreement and assigned, by the way, the 2002 patent that I mentioned. They had assigned it in 2018, a year ahead of time. They had assigned it back to NIH in an unprecedented and undocumented consideration move, which has never been done before. So all of this is at least a year premeditated, all of it. So, so when I have said many, many times, uh, Dr. Martin, during this pandemic, that I believe that the entire purpose of the pandemic was to make mRNA a household word, to make people believe right. that this platform was tried, tested, very safe, and it is so useful to many people for lots of different applications. Now, so I've always assumed it was about making mRNA universal itself because it can be used uh, for lots of different things and it's very there's a lot of money in it. You said, you used the phrase universal vaccine. When you say universal yes. vaccine, that that was their goal, yes. do you mean specifically yeah. mRNA or to, to, what, what do you mean by universal vaccine? Unpack that. Well, that's a beautiful question. And let's go to my favorite quote that I refuse to do a show without quoting, which is Peter Daszak. Um, this is published in, in uh, February of 2016, but the statement was made in 2015 during the gain of function moratorium. And this is a quote from the criminals themselves. This is not Dave Martin's opinion. This is their quote. Until an infectious disease crisis is very real, present, and at an emergency threshold, it is often largely ignored. Now listen to this carefully. To sustain the funding base beyond the crisis, we need to increase the public understanding for the need of medical countermeasures such as a pan-influenza or pan-coronavirus vaccine. A key driver is the media and the economics will follow the hype. We need to use that hype to our advantage to get to the real issues. Investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process. Oh, now, what it, do I mean? by coercion, by domestic terrorism, by any of the things I'm saying. Well, what I mean is that this is a crime that was admitted to being perpetrated on America and the world by the people who perpetrated the crime. And they even told us it would be the media hype that would get the public to accept the need for the medical mm -hmm. countermeasure. We would need to use that hype to our advantage and quote, investors will respond if they see profit at the end of the process. Now, Dr. Drew, Dr. Kelly, certainly in my medical training, did you ever in any medical school day in your life get told that the first goal of public health is to make sure investors profit at the end of a media hyped process? Is that part of our no. standard medical no. training? Is it any, and, and Dr. Drew, you, you know, listen, your work, 
and the patent work in opioid crisis, you know, is, is something that I can't leave this opportunity without commenting on because I, for years, tried to highlight the Sackler family's abuse of opioids and the opioid epidemic in the United States. The longest emergency use authorization we have had in this country is the opioid crisis and the public doesn't know this. But what they don't know even worse is that the Sackler family patented non-addictive formulas of opioids so that they could not oh, yeah. be produced. Okay? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so this is not an accidental oops. This is criminals acting in a criminal fashion to harm people. It is not an accident. This is not an epidemic well, if, or a I, pandemic. I, 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 but I'm glad you brought the opiate crisis up because I, I keep looking at that as a model for what happened during COVID. Correct. In sense that the playbook, the playbook was exactly the same, but exactly. but there's there's two components. But there are two components. One is a completely Machiavellian business organization saying yep. things like investors will respond is simply factually true. It's Machiavellian as hell, but it's yeah. true. All right. But the key ingredient, the key ingredient is an evangelical group of physicians who go out and persuade the regulatory organizations and the state medical societies, and the professional societies, that this is the answer. They see themselves as wearing Correct. white hats and coming to save the world. They're, they don't see themselves as criminals at all. They see themselves as saving the world. And so I'm wondering if these people don't you know, look at the landscape of what's out there in viral research and think it's inevitable that something gets out. It's inevitable that there's a disaster. We must come up with these vaccine platforms and we're going to save the world. And the drug companies merely stand right behind them and say, yes, you will. That's right. That's exactly right. When in fact, both and, and Drew, are completely yeah. out of line. And, and Drew, I agree, but we have to add a couple other pieces, which unfortunately blow up the justification side of this. Remember that side by side with NIAID, NIAID's funding, side by side with that was DARPA's funding since 2005 of a biological weapons technology platform. You cannot put that genie back in the bottle. That is a statement that they well, made. But, it is but, a that's, statement that they but that's maybe where, I, I agree with you, maybe that's where the evangelical physicians are coming in. They know that, they see that, and they're thinking, oh, we have to have these countermeasures. We must come up with these gigantic pan, you know, universal platforms, and we've yeah. got to figure out yeah. a way to get there, and then they become Machiavellian in their way but of I, getting there. Okay, but, but and, I want to go and, back, and because I think, I think that think they're right. Go ahead, David. Well, I, 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 all I was going to say is I think you're right, but but my my issue here, and, and this is where I have been outspoken and singular on this particular issue. You cannot take the 2015 statement of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and you cannot spin that into anything other than a violation at the time of the Patriot Act's prohibition on coercion. The reason why the public is going to accept this is because of the media hype not because of the facts, not because of the evidence. Yeah. We are going to use the That's media right. hype to accept it. And let's get clear on a second thing. The first funding for Moderna, Flagship Ventures, which is a mysterious organization. That's a whole nother show. Mm. But Flagship Ventures co-funded Moderna and CRISPR at the same time. Kelly, it's not mm. just about mRNA. This is about ultimately editing genes 
in the long play. Right. And I've said this many times. This is not about mRNA. This is about ultimately getting the public to accept CRISPR and shutting up the Catholic Church, which was the largest opposition to gene editing mm. up until COVID. And the only so, okay, way so you get the camel's nose under the tent is get mRNA, create the problem, get CRISPR to be a solution. And the Catholic Church has painted themselves into a corner saying that this was God's will. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So a couple of things. First, because I just think you hit the nail on the head. The, the part of that quote from Peter Dazak that I find chilling is the word hype. He didn't talk, Drew, Correct. about that's why it's not just Machiavellian. He didn't talk about the importance of the mainstream media and continuing to expose the facts and continuing to educate yeah. the public. He said that's exactly hype. right. It's hype. That is the word that is chilling. It is the fear mongering, the fear porn. Keep it ginned up. Keep people with the hype. It's the hype that will drive this. That is yeah. what I find yeah, yeah. chilling about that particular that particular quote. Now, go, um, David, because I think a lot of people don't understand the connection you're making here with CRISPR and the Catholic Church and that. So unpack mm -hmm. that a little bit for everybody, because I think that's yeah, a critical sorry, I component threw, I threw, to understand. <laughs> I, I threw a very, a very loaded grenade into there, and I, I'm sure I offended somebody. But let's go back many, many years ago. And this good. is the early days of, 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 my, of my work um, in medical sciences, where gene editing was something that mm -hmm. was in uh, kind of the front and center of people's minds. And specifically, if, if people go back and look, I'm sure there's a Wikipedia entry somewhere on Dolly the Sheep. Right. The very famous. Can you turn a gene edited being into an incarnated structure? And lo and behold, scientists in the UK figured out how to do that. And then they played hopscotch around the world, finally found a place in Singapore where they could gene edit all kinds of things. And the Catholic Church came out with a, a massive, massive backlash against humans playing God. And so there was this huge wave led by the Catholic Church and then adopted by many evangelical churches and other causes that said, no, that's a step too far. It's a step too far to edit the genome called humanity. And there were all kinds of fear porn around designer babies. Uh, Drew, I think you even did a show a long time ago where that topic was at least tangentially mentioned. But, but the idea was that if you're going to get the religious resistance to this God complex gene editing hydra contained, what you have to do is you have to get a, pro, a, a plausible reason for gene editing to be accepted. And it turns out that by putting a spike protein, which is a foreign entity, a scheduled toxin according to the United States Code of Federal Regulations, by getting that toxin into people, what you can do is you can actually do pro-oncogenic pro behavior and it's specifically, let's talk about what that is. The pseudouridine in the shot is a pro-cancer agent. And so what you do is you create a shot, you get people to take it. That shot then becomes ubiquitous. And now you need to edit the problem that you wrote into the human gene. 
And lo and behold, we justify CRISPR. So this is the backdoor way of getting CRISPR accepted in mainstream. And by the way, Open Philanthropy, the company that funded Event 201, was the founding funder of the CRISPR technology in the Northeast. Their first investment was CRISPR, not COVID. So the reason I'm saying this is because their money spoke their own behavior before they ever were outed. They had bet that this was the way to get CRISPR in and Drew and Kelly, they got a CRISPR EUA before any vaccines were approved. So, so again, and, uh, I think the critical, if, uh, say the critical question for me to, to, to you, David, would be, okay, it, it, the universal vaccine, the ability to modify the human genome, is it your, do you have a theory and maybe a, a, about why they would want to do that? Clearly, you know, we always have the follow the money and money is a, you know, very potent driver. I don't, for the, for the world, though, believe that that's all it is. That this isn't just about money. I think it's about way more than, than money in my mind, but I'd love to and hear Dr. your theories. Dr. About Martin, what and b before, b before you answer that, I just want to quickly just interject. If people want to learn about CRISPR as a great sort of um, little historical book, a nonfiction book called Codebreaker about uh, the evolution yeah. of this technology. And let's remind ourselves that that technology was taken by a Chinese scientist and actually used without any consideration or understanding that there was something ethically at issue here. And when he was confronted with his misadventure, he was confused, angry, uh, you couldn't imagine why we wouldn't just forge on with this. So it's an interesting also cultural sort of uh, commentary on how China see these things very differently than we do. But go ahead, Dr. Martin, yeah. answer Kelly's question there. Yeah. Well, so so if if we look if we look at the full arc of what is the motivation, um, mm -hmm. anytime people decide to mislead the public, there are a host of motivations, and most of them are based on worldviews. There's a worldview that summarizes the entirety of the human experience as a there are too many of us. We are, uh, to quote the line from the Matrix, we are a virus. We need to be somehow contained or controlled. Um, my wife and I do an enormous amount of work with people all over the world. We actually suggest that maybe there's a different worldview. And that worldview is that, that we actually are an amazing creation. Humanity is an amazing, amazing ecosystem. And if we learned how to dance with the world, we'd actually get along perfectly fine. And it, and it is, in fact, our abject failure to understand our role in the ecosystem that's the problem, not, not that there are too many of us or there are too few or anything else. But listen, if you have a worldview that says that there is overpopulation, a need to contain the, the number of people on the planet, a need to contain a certain style of consumer-based lifestyle or whatever else. The fact of the matter is, there is an enormous amount of morality that can justify the loss of a few for the benefit of the many, which is the public health expediency model that we've seen in the last several years, where we don't have any problem with acceptable death rates associated with medical countermeasures. And we are also fine in dealing with a world that says down the road, a dependency 
on CRISPR gene editing will be a way to amplify the human experience. I'm reminded in 2003 of a statement made by Aubrey de Grey, who is an anti-aging specialist who talked whimsically about a world where we don't need children anymore because we will have some, some chemically enabled or technologically enabled immortality. And, and I sit there thinking to myself, I don't want to imagine a world like that, but that doesn't mean there aren't people who have that worldview. But let's be very clear about this particular situation. And let me be abundantly clear because the money does matter. In 2020, we had fewer, listen to me carefully, fewer deaths during the pandemic than we had in 2021 with the injection. We had fewer dollars paid out in life insurance benefits during the unmedicated phase of the pandemic than we had the following year. Every single, every single economic indicator shows that we did not have some sort of global pandemic, whether you're using the official death counts from Morbidity and Mortality Weekly, whether you're using economic data from life insurance companies, which is something I've covered for a long time. Ed Dowd's done some great work in this space too. If you look, what you will find is that in this particular instance, it really was about the money. But the money was about getting investors to invest in a digital health future where humans will be audited for their compliance with digital medicine, and that creates the ultimate consumer. And if people die in the process, it's a cost of doing business. And it is not something we're going to concern ourselves with. And we will make up data that is not actually real. Listen, life insurers have no motivation to lie about how many claims they paid. But why is it that in 2021, with medical countermeasures, life insurers paid $30 billion more? $33 billion of claims more for what was allegedly a medical countermeasure that was allegedly going to save lives. And during that same period of time, death rates went up, not down. This is not about a you know, well-meaning oops. This is not about somebody overlooking a thing. This is about economics to create a new form of medical dependency called digital medicine and digital humanity. That's what it's about. No, and I'm cognizant of the clock winding down here, but uh, what you, you know, I certainly wholeheartedly agree. I've said many, many times, you know, this is not mistakes my government made. This is lies no. my government told me. Um, you know, and the question is, was it purely motivated by money, or I think you are spot on that this is the ultimate, the consummate control mechanism. It's a way to yep. hold people uh, to to make us all puppets, um, and the question question is, can we, can we, uh, is there a way out of it? I guess that's, I would leave you with the question, can enough people say not only no, but hell no, uh, and, and say, we can turn this around. We will take your digital currency. We will not take your social, uh, you know, score, whatever it is. You will not control me. Or in your mind, is this, is the horse out of the barn? 
No, uh, I, I'm a big fan of, of, I guess, naive optimism um, because I've done very large projects that have brought justice in a very long horizon, whether it was tax frauds in the early 2000s, which my company was very instrumental in breaking up, whether it was repatriating land that mining companies had stolen from indigenous communities in the Pacific. I mean, I've taken on a lot of impossible tasks and I have won so many of them that I am not at all concerned that we can't take this one on. But we can't take it on if we don't have the right conversation. And the reason I'm so grateful to both of you for this conversation is the public conversation is not about who done it. The public conversation needs to be about what is the criminal conspiratorial structure of how the public sector and the private sector have hoodwinked the public to harm it while enriching themselves. This is no different mm -hmm. from the conversations that took place at the turn of the last century in 1904 to the period in 1911, when we had the Anderson Commission and the Peugeot Commission who investigated J.P. Morgan and said, hey, it's not right that one guy controls 86% of the GDP of a country. That's not right, that's not American. And what we need to be doing is having the right conversation. If we did not understand what went wrong with opioids in that he did not understand what went wrong with COVID in that EUA. If we keep thinking this is symptom level control, then we lose. But if we understand yeah. that this is a fundamental structure that the public can do something about, and if we have a thoughtful conversation about what that problem is, we the people can take our nation and the world's ethical lead back. But we have to have the right conversation to get there. Well, I, I appreciate I you leaving us on an optimistic because I, I was thinking, like, thinking of the uh, the the Martin Luther King quote, Drew. You know, the the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice, um, and I choose yeah. to believe that. It's a great quote. I, I'm I'm naively optimistic as well. I got to admit, um, Kelly, you holding up okay? You want to? Are you? Uh... I'm doing. Yeah, I'm fine. No, I'm good. You're doing I'm good, good. Uh, Dr. Martin. Do you have you got a couple of because there's we have so many calls lined up here. I wonder if you want to take a couple of questions from the uh, Twitter I'm spaces. Are you up for that, Dr. I'm Martin? Happy to. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. For, first, though, me. First, I have a couple quick quick questions. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> if I didn't quite get who Flagship Ventures was, if you could review that little piece of history again, number one, and then number two, when did you come to this synthesis of the problem? What, what, how did you arrive here, and when did that happen? Well, as as a lot of people know, um, I was having calls as as this whole nonsense around what was going on in China was happening with a number of my friends in Australia and around the world. And, and my wife, Kim, who, without whom, by the way, most people wouldn't know anything other than, you know, what I did for CNBC and Bloomberg and all of those things. My wife, Kim, said, hey, there's this thing called Facebook Live. You should do one of your calls and just do it live. And so we literally sat down. Um, she put a cell phone up in our living room on a tripod and then started yelling at me, how many people Oh my God, more people are watching. And my God, more people are watching. And, and it turns out that three weeks into it, we had 500,000 people watching in March of 2020. So um, the, the, mm. the, the, reason why, the reason why people know um, that, that we're talking about this in this form 
um, is because my wife, Kim, had the audacity of putting a camera in front of my face and saying, hey, do what you do. And so that's what I did. But I actually brought this particular topic of coronavirus as a bioweapon risk um, to our first intelligence briefing in May of 2002. So that's how long I've been doing this. Um, we have a <laughs> record. Right, uh... one, of, one, of, one of the most important pieces of this history is while other people are trying to research origins, we actually watched the slow motion accident happen. And we did it mm -hmm. yeah. trying to alert law enforcement, trying to alert you know, governments, trying to alert people. And the fact of the matter is we found out very quickly that you are not welcome when what you're pointing out is a crime <laughs> being done by the very country that you're trying to alert to the crime. I, I had this very same experience during the opioid crisis. I, I was screaming about yeah. it from mid-90s on and was repeatedly crushed by regulatory organizations, professional societies, Department of Mental Health, State Medical Society, same, yeah. same playbook, same thing, same yeah. exact stuff. Yeah. Uh, all right, very quickly, I'm going to try to um, get, some, get some calls up here if, if we're okay with that. Uh, this is Fayal, I think. Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. You're on with Dr. Kelly Victory, myself, and Dr. David Martin. Oh, wait a minute. Now, can I, I'm having trouble, Caleb, getting people to up here uh, already. Up there there he is. Okay. Okay. Unmute. Yeah. This is, I, I wonder if it's my uh, platform here again. Yeah, it's it's a spaces. The they're there, they just got to unmute. <laughs> I'm gonna run my I'm run my animation that. again as a reminder. I'm gonna try Show again with Philip K. Yes, Philip K. Let's try you. And if, there you are. Hey, Doctor Drew, how are you? Hey, man, what's happening? Not much, not much. Uh, I just wanted to make a statement uh, and a question at the same time. Uh, 9-11 was a gift to the globalists and to the national security establishment. And I'm one of the first responders who was there. Uh, this represents, uh, to me, another 9-11 in the sense that a lot more people died, although not in a confined space. So yet you have to ask yourself, <clears throat> what has to happen uh, for justice to occur for the American people and the world? And I think until we take a real serious look at this on a scientific basis with real debate and real American leadership behind it, we're never going to get to the bottom of it. And guys like Fauci are going to get away with uh, many cancer murder in my Phil, book. Phil, let me, let me, let's frame it this way. And thank you for the service uh, on 9 11. It's much appreciated. And uh, David, maybe maybe he, he, he it's I think he's asking a question that I was actually kind of floating in my head, which was yeah. you're saying we have to have the right conversations. Can you can you flush that yeah. out a little more? Because I think that's what he's asking about. Well, yeah. Remember that. And, and I use the example of the real terrorist attack on September 28th and 29th of 2002, which is the anthrax attack. Remember that the anthrax attack brought us the PREP Act, which is the basis for the adult EUA medical countermeasure nonsense. We, we, didn't, we didn't discover the need for that. 
the U.S. government created the requirement for it. And then the world sucker punched into saying, oh, my gosh, we need to prevent bioterrorism, agreed to suspend civil liberties. So the point that the caller is making is actually a good one. But here's where I think we have the problem. I think we're not looking at what's happening behind the scenes. If you look right now at the International Health Treaty at the World Health Organization, and you ask the question of the sovereignty question of whether or not we're signing away our sovereignty with respect to the World Health Organization, there is an enormous amount of outcry about that treaty for good reason. But what we're not doing and what we should be doing is questioning the very nature of the World Health Organization because the World Health Organization has absolute criminal immunity from any action whatsoever. There is no criminal prosecution afforded any part of the World Health Organization, period. And we cannot live in a world where human organizations are granted immunity. Drew, you know this from the opioid crisis. We cannot have a world where manufacturers can kill people and just pay a fine. We can't do that. So Phil, Phil's comment is spot on, but we need to be talking about the structural problem. And if corporations are given immunity from liability, and if governments are afforded the ability to grant that immunity, that has to stop because we will have nothing but these kinds of situations over and over again, and our civil liberties will ultimately be the price we pay for it. Where do we have these conversations? You've again said we need to have the right conversation. Now you've sort of framed what the conversation is. Yeah. Where should the conversation well, be? Well, listen, it, if we use the playbook of the Clayton Act, which was the antitrust law that was passed in 1913, which is the last time the public said enough with corporate irresponsibility. The last time we did it was 1913. But if we look at where those conversations happen, they happen in congressional hearings that were demanded by the public, essentially a grand jury style conversation in Congress. And we still have the ability to do that, but we don't do it. We let it be somebody else's job. And we pretend that Rand Paul or Ron Johnson or somebody else is going to do it. And the fact is, we the people need to be leading that particular conversation and we need to be demanding that our voice is actually part of the structure of it rather than merely the observer. Don't you think Got if it. we and, if uh, we remove the, if you remove hang on for a second Drew if if we removed the blanket yeah. immunity that has been granted yep. to the pharmaceutical companies and the vaccine manufacturers that yep. alone if we said Great, you are accountable for every single adverse event. Don't you think yep. that by itself would have changed the entire trajectory of this pandemic? Oh, absolutely. But remember, Kelly, we gave up our civil liberties in 2004 because we were told to fear a terrorist who actually turned out to be right. our defense department, right? We, we <laughs> right. need to be smarter yeah. than that. We need to actually recognize that we, the people, have to actually own our accountability for complacency. And when we get mm -hmm. surprised mm -hmm. by the criminal conspiracy, we must look in the mirror first and say, hold on a second, were we asleep at the watch when this happened? Yep. Yep. And um, yeah, clearly, I, I, I understand what you're saying here. And Caleb, jump in. And we had just interesting news. Uh, I think this is just brand new news that um, was an interesting sort of um, 
tidbit that uh, runs afoul a bit of what we were just talking about. Caleb? Yeah, I just I just actually read this that the Supreme Court blocked, I think it was like 30 minutes ago to an hour that they blocked the settlement from Purdue Pharma. They had trying to, I guess, trying to declare bankruptcy with a settlement worth $6 billion, but the Supreme Court blocked it. So I don't know what the next steps are. But right. There might be some justice done at some point. Well, but 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 that's a great one. And, and listen, I sat in CNBC editorial meetings for years trying to get the story of the non-addictive formulas for opioids to be a newsworthy story. And let's be very clear on the mm -hmm. fact that none of the Justice Department, none of the AGs, none of the cases are arguing the criminal conspiracy which gave rise to murder. This was death of people. This was not an economic harm. This is people in Connecticut and Ohio and Kentucky who are dead because a corporation right. decided to kill them. This is actually yeah. not something we should be settling for a financial settlement of a couple billion dollars. Well, now we have governments actively contributing to that by not allowing, particularly in states like California, not allowing practitioners to treat the people with the addictions now that have been generated from these right. substances. Right. So there's duplicity all over the place. There's plenty of uh, responsibility to sort of pass around. We, you've been very generous with your time, Dr. Martin. We've gone well beyond uh, what we promised we would do. And I, Kelly, I don't want to <laughs> wear you out uh, neither. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll sort of give last words to each of you. Uh, Kelly, maybe you first. Well, truly, I just I so appreciate you being here, Dr. Martin. Um, I was aware of your work before your really riveting testimony before the uh, European Parliament. But uh, if anyone hasn't watched that testimony in full, it's definitely worth doing. Thank you for being here. Thank you for the work that you are doing. It is critical for people with the understanding that you have of the regulatory process and all of these agencies, which is far beyond uh, my understanding. Um, so thank you. For, for what you're doing and, and please keep up the good fight. Thank you, Kelly. And and I, I wanna just say, it, it is such an honor to, to share this conversation with all of you and, and the viewers who are watching and who will watch. Um, this, this is something where we have, without doubt, an opportunity to do some self-examination and to recognize that our democracy and every democracy requires an informed and engaged electorate. And the fact of the matter is, you know, one of the things that I benefit from is is having somebody who actually keeps me accountable every day. My wife, who who has the ability to say, hey, I think you talked over somebody's head or you you made something too complicated. And and I benefit from not only her inputs every day, but I benefit from each of these conversations and what I would welcome from any and all of you who are listening, you know, whether it's on Twitter, whether it's on other social media, wherever it is, make sure that if you're left with questions, one of the commitments I made was to make sure all of the statements I made are referenced. And if you go to our YouTube channel, Butterfly of the Week, you'll see that every single presentation we made has all of the source documents referenced in every presentation. So don't take my word for it. Be an independent consumer of information. Do your own research. Come to your own conclusions. And together, we can have the right conversation that will change the future of this situation. 
We've had some very interesting conversations, and uh, Susan, doesn't David's description of his relationship with his wife, the operation? Sound familiar? Sounds very familiar. As a matter of fact. <laughs> Good for you. Good on you, David. Uh, sounds That's very great. familiar. She was one that threw the can. She, she and Caleb threw the camera up during the uh, coldest hours of the pandemic. So we should help people understand these things. Just start talking to yeah. people. Uh, so here we are, uh, again, I've learned so much, very interesting talking to so many people and I feel like David, we should again, bring you back in a few weeks. And yes. you, you, uh, you alluded to at least two topics that you said were an entire show unto themselves. Right. And I, I, I agree. And so I think we maybe, uh, make an effort to do that, but, uh, in the, just, just to wrap things up. What do you recommend for people as if they are convinced, as you ask them to read their references and draw their own conclusions, if they are convinced, what are the first things they should do? Do we have specific recommendations? Yeah, we 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 set up several uh, now, actually, almost two years ago, we set up a platform called prosecutenow.io, which unfortunately was hacked and destroyed. Um, it is coming back. <laughs> Um, it will be announced on my Twitter. We're hoping to have it up in the next couple of days. Every single person, regardless of where they live on earth, on that site had the ability to pick the state that they live in that would download a draft criminal indictment and a draft disclosure to any elected official. It automatically sent it to elected representatives, governors, attorneys general, etc., and what we were able to do was send out several hundred thousand letters requesting AGs and others to take action. The great news right. is that that system having been destroyed is being reborn. It will be back up again. So I would encourage you and I'll share it with you guys so that you can share it across your network. Um, but Prosecute Now has all of the evidence, all of the federal criminal statutes. It has the uh, United States federal case that we brought in Utah. Um, it has all of those resources so that if you want to inform anyone from a school board member to an employer to anybody else of what this situation is about, um, all the evidence is there. It's put in a form that allows you to actually use it and share it and deploy it. And listen, I'll, I'll leave you with this observation. The reason why the media hype, back to Kelly's earlier observation, the reason why the media hype was so effective was the monotonous drone of fear porn. Every day, how many COVID mm. cases, how mm -hmm. many deaths, how many this, how many that. Listen, mm. we need to use the same repetition technology to our advantage. We need to share this conversation. We need to share conversations like this. We need to share the great work of people like Peter McCullough. We need to share the great work of the late Zev Zelenko. We need to share that work frequently so that just like the fear porn drove bad behavior, the opportunity to be fully educated can in fact drive good behavior. We have to use repetition and recitation. And so do yourself a favor and do your community a favor and share the messages so that they can be as loudly heard as the other side's message. Mm -hmm. We will leave it at that. Prosecute now as soon as it becomes available. I'm sure you will let us know. And yeah, uh, thank sure you, Dr. Will. Martin. Thank you, Kelly. And I will see people tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific for Viva Fry. And Kelly, see you next Wednesday. See you all then. I'll see you next Wednesday. 
Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help. 